Welcome to Movement Memos, a truth out podcast about things you should know if you want to change the world. I'm your host, Kelly Hayes. In the past week, we've witnessed what some have called a watershed moment as Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar, and Pete Buttigieg have all confirmed that they will not be attending the annual conference of the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. Sanders went so far as to state he will not be attending the conference because AIPAC provides a platform for leaders who express bigotry and oppose basic Palestinian rights. Meanwhile, the right-wing leadership of Israel continues to perpetuate crimes against the Palestinian people, while our own right-wing government continues to cultivate a climate of hatred that imperils Jewish people in the United States. Last week, we also saw political pundit Chris Matthews apologize amid public outcry about comments Matthews made comparing Sanders' victory in Nevada to the Nazi invasion of France. Accusations of anti-Semitism have often been weaponized to defend the Israeli government against critics who have condemned Israel's crimes against the Palestinian people and the country's illegal occupation of the West Bank. Debates about what constitutes anti-Semitism are nothing new. But in the era of Trump, spelling out these distinctions and figuring out what solidarity with Jewish people really looks like is imperative. Anti-Semitic violence made headlines towards the end of 2019, with multiple high-profile attacks garnering headlines including a machete attack at a rabbi's home during Hanukkah. While those attacks put anti-Semitic violence front and center in the media, anti-Semitic incidents have become increasingly common in the United States. Between 2014 and 2018, the U.S. saw a 40% jump in reported anti-Semitic attacks. Given that those numbers only reflect cases that were reported to the FBI, the actual increase is likely much higher. As bigoted violence against Jewish people escalates, we have also seen the rise of Jewish solidarity efforts to stop Trump's internment of migrants, as well as the BDS movement. Today's interview is a discussion I had with Rabbi Brant Rosen in the wake of December's deadly attacks. Brant is an author, activist, and truthout contributor who has been an active and vocal defender of the rights of migrants and of the Palestinian people. This is a complicated subject, and I hope you'll find Brandt's insights as helpful and hopeful as I do. I most recently talked with Brandt when we were both sitting Shiva at the family home of Truthout's editor-in-chief, Maya Shenwar. Brandt had just led a memorial service for Maya's sister, Keely, who passed away last month at the age of 29. Maya is one of my dearest friends, and I'll have more to say about Keely's passing soon. But for now, I just want to send my love to Maya her family, and all of Keeley's friends. Overdoses are an epidemic, and to fight that epidemic, we are going to have to destroy the carceral system that reinforces it. For now, I just want to say that this episode is dedicated to Keeley Shenmar, her family, friends, and loved ones. We are with you, and we will fight for a world where this tragedy is unthinkable. Our guest today is a longtime activist and author of the book, Wrestling in the Daylight, A Rabbi's Path to Palestinian Solidarity. He's also a truth-out contributor and someone I'm proud to call a friend. Brant Rosen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Kelly. I'm so thrilled to have you here because it's easy for people to simplify what's happening in the U.S. in terms of anti-Semitism, and that oversimplification can be dangerous. 
What have you seen in terms of how this violence is being discussed? Well, it's being discussed on a, a variety of levels, and um, to my mind, most of them unhelpful. I mean, I, I think we're hearing uh, on the far right level, of course, the the, the alt right, the you know white supremacists, neo not whatever you want to call them, the the movement that has been emboldened and encouraged by Donald Trump, of course, we're seeing great satisfaction at uh, at this upsurge of uh, of anti semitism and and Really, I think the key to understanding it, from my point of view, is that this is a resurgence of white supremacy that we're seeing. I think it's very important to understand anti-Semitism within a white supremacist framework, within a structural framework. And I think what we're seeing with the recent violence in New York, which has largely been perpetrated by African-Americans, we're seeing now in quarters that... I believe should know better. Uh, even many liberal or left-leaning quarters, we're seeing reconsideration of the structural analysis and people re- reconsidering whether or not um, there is this separate thing called black anti-Semitism uh, that we need to be aware of or concerned about alongside white supremacy. Uh, and that I find very dangerous and kind of insidious. I think it's it's very very important to understand that anti-Semitism. Uh, as we know it today, is something that has been generated by and propagated by uh, a structurally uh, racist white supremacist uh, movement in the United States and in the world. Uh, And anything that gets in the way of us understanding that, I think, will put us all in danger, whether we're Jews or people of color or any disenfranchised people, frankly. Can you say a bit more about the ways that Black anti-Semitism is being framed right now? But one thing that's I think is very unhelpful is that there is this conflation with so-called left anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism on the left, uh, with anti-Semitic acts that are being propagated by individual African Americans. Uh, And that's something that I think the right is very gleeful about. Um, because they are using this as kind of a cudgel against um, those on the left who have been trying to help create an awareness that anti-Semitism is really part and parcel of white supremacy. I think it's also important to factor in uh, the Israel lobby and Israel advocates and the government of Israel who are trying very, very hard to create this narrative that the most important anti-Semitism that we need to be aware of is anti-Zionism and the BDS movement specifically. Uh, the, the government of Israel and uh, the professional Israel lobby are spending literally hundreds of millions of dollars to promote this narrative that, uh, that the BDS movement is anti-Semitic. And of course, we're seeing criminalization of BDS uh, on local and state and national levels. I think it's imperative that we are unflinchingly critical about what's being thrown at us by politicians in the media right now, because nothing that we are hearing from the right is bound by logic or reason or even reality. And we're also faced with an administration that is fueling anti-Semitism by stoking white nationalist violence in general, while also waging war on immigrants in this country. Stephen Miller, who is Jewish himself, has played a key role in those attacks, Can you speak to some of the contradictions that are at work on this messy political terrain? 
Yes, I'm, uh, I'm kind of ashamed to say that Stephen Miller actually grew up in the synagogue that I grew up in, in Los Angeles. Uh, and I can only say that uh, speaking Jewishly and speaking for many Jews around the world, he's a huge disappointment to us. <laughs> um, so I think with the rise of Trumpism and with uh, the Trump administration, we and and his encouragement of white nationalists and really not only encouraging but really using the white nationalist uh, sector as a, a, an important part of his base, his political base, uh, from which he gets um, important political support. We are seeing anti-Semitism uh, and violent anti-Semitism uh, unleashed uh, in ways that we haven't seen. I mean, I, I personally haven't seen in my lifetime. I, you know, when a, a gunman goes into a synagogue uh, with semi-automatic machine guns and guns down Jewish worshipers and kills 11 people in Pittsburgh at the Tree of Life synagogue, I mean, that was something I'm still, frankly, trying to wrap myself around and, and recover from. I never, and maybe it's naive on my part, never thought I would live to see that level of anti-Semitism by a gunman who was an avowed white nationalist and for whom Trump was not um, going far enough. And we've seen other similar deadly attacks as well. Uh, and it's, it's, it's clear to me that, well, a few things are clear to me. One is that because he needs this sector as part of his political base, uh, that has given rise to this this form of anti-Semitism. But I think another part of his base is the Israel lobby and the evangelical Christian Zionist lobby or Zionist movement that uh, put Israel uh, and Zionism uh, at the center of their of their political identity uh, and their their political raison d'etre. So you know, that brings in many Jews. Many uh, Jews who, when I say people like Stephen Miller are a great disappointment, <laughs> that's a sort of, uh, you know, a, a cynical way of saying that uh, for these Jews for whom Zionism and support of the state of Israel, the colonial settler state of Israel, uh, at all costs, are really, I believe, part and parcel of uh, aiding and abetting this unleashing of this new anti-Semitism. And of course, it's not only anti-Semitism, it's racism across the board. Um, and, you know, mentioning what's going on at the border and Stephen Miller, in addition to being a, a diehard far-right Zionist, is also the architect of Trump's policy at the border, which is uh, founded similarly in, in racism and nativist ideas. And I think all of these things are connected, which leads me to conclude, as I, I try to say almost every time I write about this or post about this, that the, the true answer to what we're seeing is solidarity. Solidarity uh, among uh, the affected parties, including Jews, uh, including white Jews, that w we need to understand that this is a threat to all of us. And the only way we're going to truly be able to to address it and combat it properly as if we stand together. Stephen Miller is a big fan of Camp of the Saints, in which governments are ridiculed for their unwillingness to perform acts of genocide to stem the flow of immigration. Steve Bannon is also, unsurprisingly, a big fan of that book. Have you read Camp of the Saints by any chance? I haven't, no, unfortunately. I know a little bit about it, but... 
Well, good for you that you haven't read it. Um, I spend a lot of time diving into this kind of content, researching fascism and white supremacist violence. And as a native person, as a queer person, as a journalist and an activist, um, I spend a lot of time uh, feeling concerned for my communities and you know how we can stay safe. And I think one of the areas where we have fallen short is understanding who we're up against. Because I think there's this general call that's kind of out there that we just need to call them all white supremacists. We need to, to lump them all together. And morally, I, I certainly agree. But strategically, I think we have not taken the time to understand the, the many faces and the many functions of these groups and these people and what their agendas are. I think there's also this issue that comes up about explicit versus implicit racism. And that's something I've come across a lot in my work. It's kind of hard for us as marginalized people to grasp the difference as it's happening because it just feels like, okay, well, it's always been a bigoted country. We've always experienced these things. And when people try to single out recent events that have happened, they have to get pretty bad before people are willing to acknowledge that, yes, things are getting worse. And sometimes I feel like we don't want to insult the people who have endured so much in the past. We don't want to minimize what we have seen and experienced. And we don't want to be ahistorical and trying to make something seem unprecedented, but at the same time, to do a temp check on where we are and a fight not just for liberation, but for our survival. We need to look at the difference between dog whistles and more explicit racism. Right now, I think we're seeing those ideologies play out very successfully on their own terms without enough ideological interruption from people who are bothering to you know, parse the differences or the complexities of it all. But circling back to resistance efforts, I remember that last year you were one of a few dozen clergy who were arrested at the southern border just after Hanukkah in 2018. And I remember being moved at the time by the comparison you made between what you saw of the militarism at the border and what you had experienced in solidarity with folks in Palestine. Could you say a bit about that to our listeners? Sure. Um, so well, first of all, I want to say I completely agree with what you're saying. And I, I think there's a real danger in exceptionalizing this, the most recent violence that's coming out of the Trump moment, you know, and seeing it as somehow aberrant. And not understanding how this is emerging from something that's very foundational to this country and to many other colonial societies as well. And um, making that connection, I totally agree, is not only important strategically or from an analysis point of view, but from a moral point of view. And we need to drive that home over and over. In terms of my own participation in the Palestine Solidarity Movement, uh, I, for a number of years now, I've been uh, involved with this movement in, in various ways, both here and connecting with with allies and groups in in Palestine as well. And I, I've had experience in Palestine and participating in and direct actions where we came into contact with with the Israeli military very directly. Uh, one specific one, I think, the one you're referring to was in in Hebron. Uh, which uh, we were participating with Youth Against the Settlements in, in Hebron, among other groups. And 
you know, it was scary as these actions often are. Um, it was the first time I've, I had, I had ever been involved in an action where I was literally going up against, um, actual soldiers. Uh, although I think the difference in these days between militarized police departments and actual soldier, soldiers of a government is getting, you know, that the difference is getting rather negligible, I suppose. But at the time it was very scary. I was also aware though, that, uh, I had a certain amount of privilege as a Jewish person, as a white Jewish person. It was very clear to me that uh, the people most at risk in that action were the Palestinians first and then the uh, Israelis second. Uh, and that we, it was very clear to us that we were not being treated as harshly scary as it was. Um, but coming up against that level of militarism was, is, was and is very sobering. Uh, and it was unlike anything I had experienced in similar actions here in the United States uh, until that action uh, on the Tijuana border. And uh, again, it's not easy for me to confess when my own naivete, uh, but going into that action, which was uh, organized uh, through a variety of different uh, uh, different groups, I, I was there both representing Jewish Voice for Peace, which is an organization I'm, I've been involved with for a long time, and also. Uh, American Friends Service Committee, which was a primary organizer of the action, has a, who has a program at the Tijuana border. And at the time, I was a staff person for American Friends Service, so I was there in both of those capacities. And you know, we went through our training as as is customary when you're doing uh, direct action civil disobedience. And there were hundreds of us, and we felt a certain amount of strength in numbers. And I I was somewhat familiar with what this was all about. Uh, and then we came up against uh, the border police at the border. And there were the, those of us who actually were on the front line and were um, had agreed to, to take a rest. I immediately flashed back to my experience in Hebron. I mean, the, the ferocity of their presence, holding their submachine guns in front of them. Um, they had tear gas canisters that I was very familiar with that are... Uh, manufactured in Pennsylvania and are used uh, in Palestine as well as increasingly on the border and in many urban uh, urban areas around the country. And I, I immediately flashed on my experience in Hebron. And for me, in addition to it being, a pre and I will say it was the uh, the roughest I'd ever been treated in an action, even when I was going when we were going up against the military in in Hebron. I, I was shocked at how manhandled we were, uh, um, how violently we retreated. And again, I, I want to, with the caveat that, you know, we went in there with a, a fair amount of privilege, which is why we were, we were trying to leverage that on the on the front line of this action. But in addition to the 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 fearfulness of that moment, it really was a really clarifying moment to me um, that seeing those border policemen standing in line in front of us, we were going up against the same structural system that I had experienced in Palestine and that I am sure exists, uh, that I know exists around the world. And that was something I, I felt uh, if I had to write about anything from that experience, it was that connection. Well, thank you for that. That brings up a number of things for me. But first, I'm not sure if all our listeners would yet be familiar with the term direct action. Do you think you could quickly describe what those words mean to you and your experience? Sure. Although, um, you know, 
I'm sure you could do a, a much better job than I, Kelly. <laughs> you have much more experience at this, but I'll, I'll, I can base it on my my own experience. Um, I'm not. I'm a speaking as someone who's been involved in these actions and has been trained in these actions, but I'm not a, a teacher and a direct action um, trainer. Yeah, that's it. That's the word trainer, such as yourself. So I can speak to my own experience, and I'm sure you could say much, much more about it. Um, I mean, direct action involves nonviolent resistance and civil disobedience that is used strategically uh, to leverage uh, people power to go up against structural power, if you will. And what did that look like for you as you were preparing for that action along the border? Well, so we engaged in two days of preparation. Uh, and when we, and this was a call, and this was also unusual, it was really a call from around the country, almost around the world, really, uh, for those of us who were participating. So it was a very extensive training, uh, and it involved learning from uh, the affected population uh, on, in border communities who are living in militarized border communities about what their reality is, uh, so that we could truly understand the impact of militarization on these communities. So it's quite complex. Um, and the reason behind that is really that we, we want to be effective and we don't want to do more damage to um, what's already a very fraught situation. In this case, in the case of the border, it, it was plan probably F. <laughs> I mean, I don't think any of us expected uh, that level of violence against the, uh, the demonstrators. And and so there was, in fact, there had to be some improvising done on behalf of some of the organizers. And the lead, one of the lead organizers was actually targeted by the border police and was the most violently treated and was actually incarcerated overnight and uh, was at the risk of being charged with a, a federal felony um, for a period of time. So they, the ferocity of their response was something that we knew could happen, but I think it was not something that we expected to happen. Well, thank you for that. I think that's a very helpful explanation for our listeners. And as someone who does the work of facilitating direct action workshops and has organized a lot of protests over the years, I can say with certainty that almost none of them go down like plan A and the vast majority of them go down something like plan F. I think it's always good for people to hear about that tactical preparation that goes into protests but since this was an action carried out by clergy, y'all had some amount of spiritual preparation as well, didn't you? Yes, yes. A number of the, the clergy were on the front line, and actually uh, prayer was an integral part of the action. So when we approached the border fence, which is um, there's sort of a, a, a buffer zone that we weren't able to get right to the fence, but there was razor wire along the beach that was the closest we could get. And we uh, had prepared an interfaith service in which we said prayers on behalf of uh, the community and those who had been, those who were being detained, those who had been deported and their families. And when we spoke to the border police, uh, we said that we are here to engage in a prayerful action, that this is a, a religious ceremony and that what we are doing was, was rooted in uh, spiritual intention. So we we went through with the the ceremony uh, as we had planned, although it was it was fairly rushed because they they clearly were not going to allow us uh, the time or the space to do it as we had prepared it. 
as a Jew and as a rabbi um, and a member of the clergy, this was a defining part of the action because it was an interfaith call. The rooting of civil disobedience as uh, a religious act, as a religious imperative, uh, is something that's very motivating to me uh, and many of my colleagues, obviously. I want to circle back to something you've emphasized about solidarity and solidarity being the only way forward, the only way that we can all hope to keep our communities safe. So in addition to the kind of protests and these these large acts we can take publicly in order to declare that we're in solidarity, in order to sort of build that united front and that united energy, what can everyday people be doing in our day-to-day lives? What do we need to be doing to be good allies to Jewish folks who are being targeted right now by anti-Semitic attacks? That kind of solidarity happens, I guess, on a number of different levels. The first thing that I I would say is if you have Jewish friends uh, or colleagues uh, or acquaintances of any kind and something like this happens, reaching out to them personally is, is enormously important and letting them know uh, that you are with them and that uh, you stand with them and grieve with them. Uh, I think to the extent that that folks are able to make those gestures publicly as well uh, is enormously important. And I, it's really almost a discipline. I mean, I mean, these kinds of attacks, for instance, on the Muslim communities have been happening happening for quite a while. Uh, and you know, God forbid when these things happen, and they do happen, I've always made a point of literally calling up on the phone all of my Muslim friends after there's been a shooting at a mosque or, or some, some heinous act toward the community and letting them know uh, that I'm thinking of them, that I stand with them. And that kind of thing is just enormously heartening and very, very important just on the, the interpersonal level of solidarity, I think can't be overstated. I, I think it's also solidarity in addition to the interpersonal level. I think there is a, a level of education and, and acquiring analysis that's important as well, um, and understanding what are the root causes of this kind of violence and um, what it is and what it's not, and not jumping to conclusions about what uh, the media might be reporting or what uh, more odious folks out there might be saying about what the causes of this violence are or what we need to do to be able to combat it. So. Um, I think that's an enormous part of what solidarity means in general is internal education and finding ways to learn together what are the causes of this kind of oppression and what we need to do together to be able to address it and to dismantle it ultimately. I want to talk a bit about the Jewish activism that we have seen in the face of detention and family separation. There's been a lot of great work from groups like If Not Now, uh, forming barricades outside of ICE detention centers. Can you say a bit about what the effect has been on overall organizing, um, these bonds that are being formed, um, these historical connections that are being drawn in order to do the work of direct action? Do you think that's building something that's going to be helpful to us in the long term? Oh, absolutely. No, and it's enormously encouraging. Um, from a Jewish point of view, this new movement that you're referring to, and it's largely being directed by by young folks, um, young Jews, uh, who aren't buying the same narrative that that the Jewish community has been 
promoting for the last several decades. Uh, it just doesn't work anymore. It's increasingly not working. And this is a narrative I was raised with myself. I mean, you know, and it's a, it's a post-Holocaust narrative. It's a narrative that this genocide against the Jews uh, was something that was unique in history. And um, there is this unique insidious form of hatred that affects Jews uh, alone, and that the only way that we can address it is we can, we can only depend on ourselves. And that when we use the words never again, it means we are never again going to allow this to happen to us. We're never going to go like sheep to the slaughter, which is uh, the unfortunate term that's often used. Uh, and so that siloing and that cocooning is something that I mean, I'm very, it, I'm very aware of its dynamics in the Jewish community because it's rooted in in trauma and it's it's rooted in very real historical experience and i know it because i was raised with it myself you know i listened to my parents grew up during the holocaust and i grew up hearing they were children but they were well aware what was going on and and they experienced a great deal of anti-semitism as children in this country growing up in the you know in the 40s and so i inherited that i sort of imbibed that and many jews of my generation did as well and we projected that narrative onto Israel. Israel is this militarized nation, Jewish nation state is what's going to keep Jews safe. So I, I'm sure every community has its own story to tell about the ways in which there are forces that that promote siloing uh, and shutting off uh, from the kind of solidarity we were talking about before. And if there's a lesson that we need to learn from the Holocaust, if there's any one primary lesson, never again means to never again for anyone. Now, of course, comparing what Israel is doing to to the Nazis is is a fraught thing to do, and there are many definitions of anti-Semitism that will say that what I just said was actually anti-Semitic. And again, what I would say is I think there are differences and there are commonalities, and those commonalities are real. When you use state violence to oppress another people, and when those people are dehumanized and are seen as a problem to be dealt with uh, militarily. I think that's a very important commonality between what Israel is doing and what Germany was doing in the 1930s. So never again for everyone is something that young people completely understand. And it's very, very, it's getting harder and harder for uh, Israel and Israel advocates to explain away what's going on. So if not now, um, who you refer to, which is um, an organizing movement uh, that's largely generated by by young people. And now we're seeing kind of a semi-offshoot of that called Never Again Movement, which is specifically young Jewish movement uh, that is organizing direct action against what's going on at the uh, the border and against ICE and those affiliated with ICE. Even calling it Never Again is a very, very explicit rejoinder to the the siloing Jewish community of their parents' and grandparents' generation. And I think, you know, I think history's on our side. I think um, this is the direction of the Jewish community. So I'm, I take heart in that. What I worry about, and I, I often say this, is that I think we have history on our side, but I wonder if we have time on our side. And that might be the subject of a whole nother podcast. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah. But this transformation is very real, is what I'm trying to say. Ooh, you mentioned time. And uh, is time on our side? And isn't that the most horrifying question? Because we all know that it isn't. We all know that time is against us when it comes to fighting environmental collapse. We know that 
Time is against us as fascism continues to build power here and around the world. So living in that urgency and trying to evaluate what the moment demands of us, it's, it's really difficult because the status quo is pushing us really hard to feel like everything can stay the same. And that's because a, a system is trying to maintain itself. You know, it's really not looking at what's best for each of us so much as the, sustaining the system itself. And that requires our cooperation. It requires us to act like everything is normal for as long as possible. And when I think about what are we really being called to do right now, I'm reminded of a piece that uh, Maya Shenwar and I wrote last year about prison organizers and the level of solidarity that they have to form to carry out things like prison strikes in spite of some very heavy adversarial relationships that exist in those environments. The torturous conditions of the prison system itself have to be the focus. And if folks aren't able to do that, then they really aren't able to organize for change. And I feel like there's so much that we need to learn from that, from people who are experiencing a level of surveillance that is beyond anything that we've experienced. Um, people who are controlled more tightly than most of us have ever been controlled. That's what fascism feels like. And I think we really look, need to look to the people who already know what that looks and feels like and already know what it is to struggle in spite of it and who know how to put differences aside long enough to try to stay alive and maybe fight another day. And I think that as we lose more and more control of um, our role in a political process that wants control to rest with billionaires and politicians, we will see more of these things like the militarization of police. We will see more heightened surveillance. It's already happening. The conditions to prevent us from course correcting are being imposed right now. And I don't think that people necessarily understand that. And I definitely don't think that we are reacting with the ferocity that we ought to be to some of these things that are going down. But I think people are, are really, really afraid. I think people are afraid of processing what the moment demands of them. I think they're afraid that what they do won't matter. I think they're afraid of letting themselves imagine how things might play out. And, you know, that's difficult and it's, it's a hard thing to ask anyone of in this moment to really stare down everything we're up against and to have enough hope to act anyway. And I was taught that hope is a discipline and, you know, that we have to ensure it for others, that we don't have the right to give up on other people, that we don't have the right to stop cultivating hope. And as someone who feels very strongly about that, I just want to ask you, as we wind things down here, what gives you hope? Well, first of all, I mean, I want to say I completely agree. I found what you just said so spot on and so so profound. I, I, I when I worked for an American Friends Service Committee, we did prison work, and we have there's a wonderful program in Michigan, in Ypsilanti, Michigan, that does amazing work, and and most of the staff and volunteers are formerly incarcerated people. And you know, one of the things I learned by overseeing that project and that program was that in order to do what they do, they have to go, you know, they have to go in, <laughs> they have to go to the belly of the beast and confront what's going on. And as you say, feel that hurt. Uh, there's no other way but in. And 
some of those important organizers on that issue are, are formerly incarcerated people. They're just incredible mentors of mine. And as you were talking, you know, I, I was, until you mentioned it, I was thinking, yes, global climate emergency. When we're talking about feeling like we don't have time on our side and that feeling like it's just all such a jumble and what can we do and where do we find hope? These are all key critical questions. And, you know, I will say, Kelly, that you're one of my teachers on this as well. You know, the willingness to name that we, that this pain is real and we need to feel that pain is is so important. And also say the unthinkable, which is, you know, we might not make it. The odds are really, really tall against us. Uh, and we need to say that out loud. And, you know, my, this last High Holidays, I gave a sermon uh, about this very issue. It was uh, it was framed around climate emergency, but it was really about how do we find hope in, in such a seemingly hopeless time. And I actually ended with words of yours, something to the extent of, you know, are you anti-fascist? Are you, uh, you know, anti-oppression? Are you um, fighting for justice? Then if you are, you need to know that none of these people throughout history ever had the odds on their side. And that, that to me is an important realization that we need to be honest and upfront about that, but that we need to find ways to struggle together. And the, the meaning and the hope is not just in the, the victory, because there's no, there's no ultimate victory, really. There's lots of victories along the way, and there's also setbacks along the way. And that's how it's always been. And the meaning comes from the, the struggle itself. Struggle is painful, but struggle is also joyful. It needs to be, or uh, it's not going to work. And being able to find meaning in, and love and, and joy in that struggle and being able to promote a vision of the world that sees struggle not just as hard work and often just setback after setback, but actually, it's a, it's a way we build community. It's a way we build meaning. It's a way we, we activate love in the world. Uh, and it's a way we generate hope. I mean, that for me is the primary place where hope is found is by the camaraderie that comes from the struggle itself. You know, I'll just say very briefly, my, my new congregation, Tzedek Chicago, which is five years old, is a justice-focused, intentional Jewish congregation. And when we first started we, um, when we get together on our Sabbath on Friday night, our services tended to be exhausting because we just talked about the struggle and we would actually use the service to organize around specific issues. And it occurred to me pretty early on that this wasn't what people needed or what people wanted. You know, most of the people who belong to our congregation are involved in that struggle every day. And they coming on the Sabbath on Shabbat to be rejuvenated, to get the hope you were asking about. And early on in building this community, one of the things I realized that the function of, of Shabbat needs to be is about allowing ourselves this 24-hour period to live in the world that we're fighting for. That's how we frame it, that we are going to create that world for each other, uh, which is, I would argue, what Shabbat has always been, frankly. In Judaism, it's called Olam Haba, the world to come. And it's not just something that we pray for. On Shabbat, it's something we live in. Uh, and there's all kinds of traditional laws that have been prescribed throughout history about, about what that means. But the bottom line on, at its essence means we're going to cease 
the work of the last week, which is the struggle for justice and liberation. And we are going to inspire one another and live in that world just for this period of time so that when we go back into it on Saturday night and Sunday, when it's over, we will be all the more replenished and able to uh, engage in that struggle anew. And for me, and I suspect for you as well, that's really where the hope comes from, is, is finding joy in the struggle and finding love in that struggle, um, no matter where it may lead us, because we don't know. You know, there are no guarantees. There's, there's only this work that we have before us. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And it always makes me feel reassured when people are discussing organizing and resisting oppression as a way of living is something that matters regardless of how things turn out. Because I think you're very right. I think that not understanding that is one of the barriers that people have to taking action. When we talk about historical movements, I don't think that people really understand that the work of folks who lived and died without seeing their justice realized, it's not just valuable because later on other people took up the cause and won the day. I really think we need to understand the value of living in struggle, of having a purposeful existence amid disastrous circumstances. The fight against chattel slavery in the United States would have been worthwhile even if slavery was never abolished. And I think that people really need to think through these historical examples and the way in which we imbue legitimacy. Just treating something like it's worthwhile because it is morally worthwhile is not something people are used to doing in this country. It's all contingent on victory, on whether we win or we lose. And I feel pretty strongly that living this way, having a sense of purpose, choosing to pursue collective liberation in concert with other people, I think that these things can be ends in themselves. I don't think that we should become insular or treat activism as some kind of you know, haven we don't want to leave, like a clubhouse where we don't take action, we just kind of, you know, vote people off the island who don't get it and feel good about, you know, our shared values. Obviously, we don't want to do that. But I think that if there are folks who are being persecuted because of their immigration status, I think them looking out the window and seeing people protesting for their freedom, seeing that there are people who are demanding that their humanity be respected, I think win, lose, or draw, that's an end in itself. I think that solidarity as an expression of who we are as people and what human potential could be. I really think that we need to start seeing these things as not simply a means to an end, but a way to live in our own power and in our own values. And you know, to not be willing to surrender any of that, to not let that be cheapened by the fact that this world does not always yield to what's right. And honestly, I feel, I feel very deeply for people who are not involved in community work or activism of some kind, folks who haven't found that home yet among like-minded folks who are trying to, to really save us all from all of these things that are happening. I would have a very hard time getting out of bed in the morning if not for the wide community of folks I know who are also making themselves get out of bed in spite of everything that's happening of finding hope within themselves, of finding hope in the people around them so that we're not just sort of 
dangling threads, you know, people kind of lost in this scary situation. But, you know, when we weave ourselves together into a fabric, you know, we are strong. We have the power to endure. And I want that for people. I want that for our listeners. And that's one of the things we're trying to accomplish with this podcast is just bringing into people's headphones and into their cars some knowledge, some hope, an idea of what it could look like to build towards the things that we all want to have happen. And, you know, in the worst case, if we can't get there, to figure out what justice looks like in our own communities, in our own spaces, in our own homes, and to live in that together and to know that come what may, that means something. I can't think of anything more comforting than prefiguring the world I want to believe in and being surrounded by people who believe it's possible and are committed to its possibility. It's such a difficult time in history and having a sense of purpose and having people to share it with, I'm forever grateful for it. And I'm so grateful for you, Brant, and I'm grateful for the role that you play in community, bringing people together around these issues, bringing your spiritual guidance these protests that you've been involved in. So I just want to tell you how much I appreciate you. I know a lot of us are moving through these spaces and we don't necessarily take the time to stop and tell each other that, you know, you think what someone's doing is really important and amazing. So, you know, I just want to let you know, I think what you're doing is important and amazing. And I, I really appreciate you being on the show with us today. Thank you, Kelly. And, and likewise, your, your work and your writing is provided a great deal of hope for me and I know for many, many people to be able to clarify in ways that you just said so, so beautifully, why this work is not only important, but is, uh, is, is an essential way to live, you know, absolutely. I, all I can say is amen. So as we exit here, I just want to quickly ask is, is there any ask that you would like to extend to our listeners? You know, I think apropos of what we've just been talking about, what I, I will say, my ask is, and, and this might be the hardest ask of all, um, because there's a lot of despair by otherwise well-meaning progressive-minded folks, um, just a great deal of despair that, you know, what can one person do? What can I do? Things are just so horribly, you know, fucked up. If I want to ask, it really would be what we've just been talking about, which is, try to use that pain as uh, a conduit for connection to other people who are experiencing pain that, are, that don't look like you, that, that aren't in the same community as you. You know, people may already have, may well already, maybe already have friends in those communities. And it could happen just on the interpersonal level that I was talking about before, just reaching out and letting people know that you're there for them. It could happen on a, a larger level and learning about the the different organizing initiatives that are going on in cities around and communities around the country and finding out ways that you can become a more active part of that joyful struggle that we've been talking about. But the first step is, I guess, if there's an ask is for people to realize that, that there is a pathway beyond that despair and there is hope beyond that despair. I know that sounds very Pollyannish, but I think that's really the essential first step. I think that's an excellent step. And again, thank you for being here and uh, for that important homework assignment, because I think it's, I think it's one we all ought to be doing. Thanks, Kelly. It's been an honor. It's been great talking to you, Brant. And I also want to thank our listeners for joining us today. Remember, our best defense against cynicism 
is to do good and to remember that the good we do matters. Until next time, I'll see you in the streets. Yeah.